This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. In fact, our very first full episode of 2024. Olivia, how are you? How has your week been? How is the new hospital? How's everything going? It's been a week. My um, hospital closed down and I now work in a brand new, beautiful neuro ICU. So today was my first day. And it was interesting, <laughs> but it's good. Um, nothing too exciting happening. Had a little celebration of shutting the hospital down and, you know, hung out with some coworkers. Yes, I called you last <laughs> night and you were definitely having a celebration. You're like, I'll be up super early. I was like, no, you won't. No, you won't. <laughs> and I wasn't. I sure wasn't. I struggled today for sure. Um but yeah, how are you? You y'all have severe winter weather, and I think probably a lot of our listeners too. Y'all are about to get a freeze. Yeah, we are in the beginning stages of snowmageddon. So I have winterized our out like our spigots outside for the hose. I've gone and bought a snow shovel. I have rock salt, so I'm ready to rock. I've been running around. Plus, we have a sick kid at home, so I, it's three and a half hours sleep, maybe last night, and then just run around all day. I did find a place to get like an hour and 20 minute nap in today, which felt really nice, but running on fumes, but we're going to make it. So I'm, uh, I'm ready to shovel snow and they've already canceled school for a couple of days this week. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how everything plays out. But hopefully if you're listening to this and you're somewhere that's getting hit with that weather, you're staying safe, you're staying warm, you're staying dry and nothing's too crazy, but we have a very steep driveway. So every year I have to like make sure I get out there. This is my first year owning a snow shovel. I've always had to uh, improvise in the past. So this is, I was like this year I'm getting a shovel for sure. How often do y'all get snow in Nashville? Since I moved down here, we usually get like one to two good snows a year. So we'll like get an one inch or two or like inches. 
this year the storm that is rolling in now they're calling for three to five. Okay. So. But that was one of my favorite things to do was to leave my snow shovel behind in Iowa. And then when it was time to get rid of the little ice scraper, I was like, huh, I don't need this anymore. So you don't get snow in Louisiana? They do in the North Louisiana. They get like an inch of ice. Usually it's kind of like sleet that freezes. It kind of looks like snow, but it's wet down in New Orleans. Absolutely not. Well, give it a year or two. That global warming will catch up. You guys are getting but four we feet are, of snow. Wednesday, we're supposed to be below freezing. So we do get some freezing weather, but I mean, it's like a day. And then the next day, it'll probably be like 72 degrees. So yeah, Monday. Looking forward to being sick next week, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Monday, it's supposed to be negative nine as the low. And then by the following Tuesday, it's going to be 60 degrees. So listeners, just a heads up. <laughs> going to be super sick again. I can guarantee it. Oh, yeah. 100%. But last year I didn't have a shovel. So, you know, those like rubber made like 30 gallon, like the long storage totes. I took the lid for one of those and I was outside last year. Just be like, damn it, next year I'm buying a shovel. I'm just. You're going to hurt your back doing that. That's all right. I got a, I got a mule's back used to lifting base amps and doing all that stuff. So it hurts all the time anyway. <laughs> so Don't make it worse. Cause then you'll have to be my patient. Yep. Just be a little hunchback of Nashville, but Super excited, though, because this is our very first episode of 2024. Well, not our first episode, but our very first case. So I'm really excited to dive into it. And I think I picked a really good one. I had never heard about this case before. And I was, you know, I'm going to be very interested to see if you have heard about it, but I'm excited to get into it. But again, if you are somewhere with that winter weather before we start, just make sure you guys are staying safe. You got everything you need. Get your bread, your eggs, your milk, so you can make your snowstorm French toast. Cause I swear that's what everybody does. You get those three things. I'm like, everyone's just making snow, <laughs> just making French toast and snowstorms. My mom baked brownies and I forget what else she was cooking. I called her yesterday. She was like, I'm just cooking. I'm like cooking for what she's like, well, we're about to be frozen. So I'm like cooking up. I'm like, okay. Yeah. No, I swear to God here in the South, it's like snow's coming. So it's, I got to get Bread. I got to get milk. I got to get eggs. Those are the three things they never have. And it's like, everybody's just making French toast. It's just, <laughs> you know, but I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to get into it. What do you say? Should we just jump in and start breaking down this week's episode? Yeah, let's get started. Let's do it. For this week's case, we're heading to Stewart, Florida in 1972. On July 21st, two teenage girls were out hitchhiking. 17-year-old Pamela Wells, and 18-year-old Nancy Trotter. As they attempted to thumb a ride to a local beach, a police patrol car pulled up alongside of them. The officer inside the vehicle informed the teens that hitchhiking was illegal. However, he offered to drive the girls to a local halfway house that they were staying at. The girls accepted the ride and climbed into the car. Once they arrived, the officer offered to come back the following day. He told the teens that he would be off duty and could take them to the beach himself to make sure that they arrived safely. Again, the girls accepted. And the next morning, the local policemen arrived to pick up Pamela and Nancy. But once inside the car, things changed. Instead of the beach, the girls were taken to Hutchinson Island, a deserted and swampy area off of a South Florida state road. Once they arrived, the officer forced the teens out of the car. He began making sexual remarks towards Nancy and Pamela, and it was then that the cop pulled out a gun and aimed it at the girls. 
He told them that he had planned to sell them to a white slavery ring where they would be forced into prostitution. But as the officer continued to terrorize the two young women, he received a call over the radio, and he knew he would have to leave. He then bound both girls tightly. Making them stand on tree roots, he tied nooses around both of their necks. If they were to slip or fall, they would be hanged. After he felt that they were secure, the officer left the scene to answer the call. But luckily, Pamela and Nancy were able to escape. The girls made their way to a nearby highway where they were able to flag down another police car. Finally safe, the teens were taken to a local precinct, and when asked who had abducted them, the girls gave the police officer's name, Gerard John Schaefer Jr. Now, Schaefer was born in Wisconsin on March 25, 1946. He was the oldest of three children. While people who knew the family described his childhood as perfectly normal, Schaefer claimed it was violent and chaotic. He claimed that he was the illegitimate son of a forced marriage, and as a young boy, he had begun to explore some dark sexual interests. He had a fondness for women's clothing, particularly underwear, and by 12 years old, he would put them on and begin masturbating. Schaefer was also drawn to masochistic bondage. He would tie himself to a tree, struggle to get free, and then find himself sexually aroused. He would then do something to hurt himself. As an adult, Schaefer would tell a psychiatrist that he imagined himself dying in the games he played. He would go on to say, I always got killed in the games. I wanted to die. My father favored my sister, so I wanted to be a girl. I was such a disappointment to my family as a kid, to my father. He loved my sister. I couldn't please my father, so in playing games, I wanted to be killed. In 1960, the family moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and as Schaefer grew, so did his urges. Self-harm fantasies weren't enough for the teenager anymore, and he began to daydream about hurting other people, particularly women. His obsession with women's underwear continued to grow, and he began torturing and mutilating small animals. When neighbor children had loose teeth, he would beg to yank them out, referring to himself as Dr. Jerry. After graduation, Schaefer would go on to attend Florida's Atlantic University, where he would graduate with a bachelor's degree. By 1969, Gerard John Schaefer was working as a teacher, but he would be fired for, quote, totally inappropriate behavior. However, no details are available about exactly what led to the firing. Following his dismissal and perhaps looking for spiritual guidance, Schaefer applied to the priesthood, but he would be denied for lack of faith. Schaefer was so angered by this that he would leave the Catholic Church entirely. But at the age of 25, Gerard John Schaefer would find a new profession, and he entered the police force as a patrolman in 1971. So now we're going to flash forward back to July 22nd of 1972. Schaefer returned to the swampy area of Hutchinson Island to find that the two teens had escaped, and he knew he was in trouble. Attempting to cover his tracks, he made a phone call to Sheriff Richard Crowder. He told his boss that he had made a mistake and, quote, overdone his job. According to Schaefer, his intentions were to scare Pamela Wells and Nancy Trotter out of ever attempting to hitchhike in the future. But Sheriff Crowder did not buy Schaefer's story, and he was fired on the spot. Additionally, Schaefer was charged with two counts of aggravated assault and false imprisonment. 
he would later be released on a $15,000 bond. And that's the equivalent of about $110,076 today. Schaefer would stand trial in November of 1972. He pled guilty to one count of assault and the other charges were ultimately dropped, with the judge in the case calling Schaefer a, quote, thoughtless fool. He was sentenced to one year in prison and three years probation. And the former policeman began serving his sentence in January of 1973. However, the extent of Gerard John Schaefer Jr.'s crimes had not yet been realized. So, Olivia, before we go any further, what are your thoughts? What are you thinking so far? I'm thinking a lot. My first thought is, is Gerard, he was very confused as to what he wanted to be when he grows up, when he grew up. But I think that he, maybe if he would have stayed in priesthood route, he maybe not would have been so, I'm assuming he murders people, but I, you know, we're not there yet. But I just don't understand how a cop, I guess because of the timing, like, I feel like there's more testing and psychological evaluations and like digging into your past before you just become a cop, you know? And it seems like he was experiencing these sexual, I don't even know what to call them, desires as a young person. Yeah. So I definitely agree with you. I think that nowadays there's probably way more extensive background checks and psychological evaluations. I feel like in 1972, you were just like, I want to be a cop. And you would put in an application and all of a sudden you were a cop, right? As long as you could pass like the physical exam or whatever, you know, because it wasn't a great time racially for a lot of people. You know what I mean? Like the 70s were also the most violent decade on record as far as serial killers and violent crime. So I would imagine they were like, hey, we just need people. You know what I mean? But I, I do agree with you where I was thinking like you grow up and you have these super dark urges, right? Like you're. A preteen, a teenager, you're putting on women's underwear, you're pleasuring yourself. Then you're, you know, tying yourself to a tree because you liked, you know, being hurt and the idea of like you being hurt and you feel like a failure to your family. And I wonder if him attempting to join the priesthood. His way of staying the straight and narrow, like following the rules and not thinking or acting on his desires. Yeah. Or like it could be his like, okay, if I do this right, then like. I know I'll be on a on a good path, right? Like this will help me to yeah. get rid of these demons, you know. What I will mm-hmm. say, the idea of this guy being a teacher, just in what we've heard so far, is absolutely terrifying to me. Is I'm glad he got fired yeah. for totally inappropriate behavior. But I also think he should have been in prison far longer than a year. I mean, he hung these women with a noose and if they slipped, they were dead. Like, I don't I don't think that he served enough time for this crime. And I'm sure there's more to the story because we haven't gotten to anybody dying. But yeah, and I think it's also like part of the time as well. Right. Like because basically what we're saying is like these two girls, they were out hitchhiking. He told them it was illegal, which in, in the research, I found that it was not illegal in Martin County. But he told him, like, hey, what you're doing is illegal. And then his defense was basically I just wanted to scare him straight. Right. So. Right. I don't know if it's because it was the seventies and you know, kids, you know, the neighbor would spank kids in the seventies. You know what I mean? Like anybody could spank yeah. you in the seventies. Anybody's parents could spank you. Even back when I was a kid. Yeah. I was born in 85. And I remember, you know, if I acted out loud anywhere, it was like anybody can hit you. So be careful, you know, but I wonder if it was part of the time where they were just like, 
yeah, you know, we get what you were trying to do and it was a stupid idea. So we're going to give you the year. And then he had three years reporting probation after that. But it's just, you know, it's a wild thing to claim to be like, yeah, I put nooses around these girls necks because I wanted to scare them straight. I and then I just left them. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, I'm interested to see what his next career choice is. Do we find out? So we don't get into any more of the, well, you know what? Let me not spoil it for you. You just want to jump back in and hear the rest of it? Yeah, let's just keep going. All right, let's do it. On September 27th, 1972, 17-year-old Susan Place and 16-year-old Georgia Jessup had vanished. At this time, Schaefer was out on bond and awaiting trial. According to Susan's mother, Lucille Place, the two girls had last been seen at the Place home, and they had left with an older man who called himself Jerry Shepard. According to the girls, they were going to the beach to play guitar and hang out, but they would never return from their trip. Luckily, Lucille had been quick-witted enough to jot down the man's license plate. She also remembered that the car was a bluish-green Datsun. Lucille handed this information over to the authorities when the girls were reported missing. But unfortunately, the investigators were slow to move, and the plate wasn't tracked down until March of 1973. It was at that time that detectives learned that the car didn't belong to a Jerry Shepard. It was, in fact, owned by Gerard John Schaefer. But at that point, Schaefer was already in prison serving his one-year sentence. He was questioned but denied having any contact with Place or Jessup. And because he was already incarcerated, the police didn't seem to push any further. But that would all change on April 1st of 1973. Two men were visiting Hutchinson Island looking to collect discarded aluminum cans. While walking the island, they made a horrifying discovery. They stumbled upon two sets of skeletal remains. Terrified, the men contacted the local authorities. And four days later, using dental records, it would be determined that the remains were in fact those of Susan Place and Georgia Jessup. The investigation suggested that both girls had been tied to a tree and savagely butchered, with Place being shot in the jaw at some point. Local police couldn't help but notice the similarities between their victims and the abduction of Pamela Wells and Nancy Trotter. They were just too alike to be a coincidence. And authorities again focused on Gerard John Schaefer. It was at this point that they were granted a search warrant for Schaefer's now-divorced mother's home. They believe that their suspect kept belongings in the house, and they thought that there may be some evidence to link him to the crime. Inside Schaefer's bedroom, police found an immense amount of evidence. This included stories that Schaefer had written describing the rape, torture, and murder of women. There were over 100 pages filled with terrifying details and morbid sketches. As they continued to search, they made another discovery a collection of women's jewelry, diaries, identification cards, and human teeth. Additionally, newspaper clippings about various missing women were found in Schaefer's horrifying stash. It was now clear to authorities that Gerard John Schaefer was in fact a mass murderer. Now remember that the term serial killer wasn't coined until 1974. Now some of the clipped articles were about another pair of missing hitchhikers. Colette Goodenough, and Barbara Wilcox. Both girls were 19 years old and had disappeared the week before Schaefer began his prison sentence. Additionally, one of the girls' IDs was found in Schaefer's collection, 
the remains of Goodenough and Wilcox would not be discovered until 1977, and no cause of death was ever determined. Now, another news clipping found in the home referred to the 1969 disappearance of 22-year-old Carmen Hollick, who had been abducted from her home. Police also found items of jewelry belonging to Hollick, along with a gold-filled tooth that would later be identified by her dentist. And still more. A news article recovered described the disappearance of Lee Bonadice. She had been a neighbor of Schaefer's when she disappeared in September of 1969. In fact, Schaefer had made claims that the young woman had been taunting him by undressing with her curtains open. Items of jewelry belonging to the missing woman were found inside Schaefer's mother's home. Bonadice's remains wouldn't be recovered until 1978. More jewelry found inside the home linked Schaefer to the October 1972 disappearance of Mary Briscolina and Elsie Farmer. Both of these girls were only 13 years old at the time of their disappearance. Now, as the investigation continued, the list of suspected victims would continue to grow. But sadly, Schaefer would not be held accountable fully. He would only be charged with the murders of Susan Place and Georgia Jessup and he would be convicted of two counts of first-degree murder in October of 1973. Now, Schaefer and his defense team would file over 20 appeals. All would be denied. Now, by 1990, Schaefer and his crimes had mostly been forgotten, but it was then that a former girlfriend, Sandra London, published a collection of Schaefer's depraved stories. It was called Killer Fiction. Schaefer claimed that these stories were nothing but works of art, but police and prosecutors maintained that they were in fact descriptions of the grisly crimes Schaefer had committed. Also, in private letters to his attorney and friends, Schaefer seemed to admit to his crimes. Killer fiction contained a story titled Murder Demons. In a letter written in April of 1991, Schaefer said, What crimes am I supposed to confess? Farmer? Briscolina, what do you think murder demons is? You want confessions, but don't recognize them when I anoint you with them, and we've just gotten started. Additionally, in a letter written in January of 1991, Schaefer claimed to have had more victims than authorities originally believed. In this particular letter, he took issue with District Attorney Robert Stone's list of only 34 victims. Schaefer wrote that his personal list contained 80 to 110. According to the letter, he killed on three continents over an eight-year period. He claimed that one woman drowned in her own vomit as she watched him disembowel her friend. Most disturbingly, he asked if killing a pregnant woman counted as two kills, claiming that keeping track could just get confusing. As the years went on, Many true crime books and programs would describe Schaefer as a prolific serial killer, and he didn't like that, so he would go on to file libel lawsuits against several authors, but all of these cases were ultimately dismissed. In fact, Judge William Steckler, who presided over one of these libel cases, branded Schaefer a serial killer, finding him undeniably linked to numerous murders beyond the two for which he stood convicted. Now, in 1995, Schaefer's life would end in the same way that he lived it, violently. On December 3rd, while sitting in his cell, Vincent Rivera barged in. Rivera was serving a life-plus-20-year sentence for murder in Tampa. 
the fellow inmate proceeded to slash Schaefer's throat and stab him in both eyes. Now, no solid motive was ever determined, but it was believed that Schaefer had been ratting on fellow inmates. Interestingly, with Schaefer dead and threats of litigation gone, law enforcement officials finally felt as if they could speak their minds about the notorious killer. Bill Haggerty, an ex-FBI agent, interviewed Schaefer for the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, or VICAP. While reflecting on his time with Schaefer, Agent Haggerty said that he was, quote, one of the sickest, if I had a list of the top five, which would include all of the serial killers I've interviewed throughout the country, he would definitely be in that top five. Georgia Jessup's mother, Shirley, was quoted as saying that she believed what happened to Gerard John Schaefer was overdue justice. In an interview, Shirley said that she would send a cake to Vincent Rivera if she could. She only wished that his death would have come sooner rather than later. So that's this week's case, Olivia. Uh, Just wondering, you know, first, have you ever heard of this guy? Because I was really surprised that I hadn't heard of it. And also, after going through everything, what are you thinking? Where's your head at? Because I know this one kind of messed me up a little bit. Yeah, I was not expecting that at all. And I have not heard of this case, which is shocking because I feel like he's a pretty prolific serial killer. But I was not anticipating the amount of women that he had killed. And then... Why would the girlfriend release the book? So I believe that she was a supporter of his and mm-hmm. believe that the stories that he had written were works of fiction. Or truly fiction. Yeah. And so she put it out so that people could read his, you know, it's the, unfortunately that happens a lot. You know, John Wayne Gacy was selling paintings in prison. People were buying his paintings from, so it's, you know. I mean, I have two paintings from prison in my house. You do? Yeah. From who? So we have the state penitentiary, Angola. Um, They do a rodeo every year. And they also do like, they make things. Like they build furniture. They do painting. They make jewelry. Like they have to like earn their keep basically. And so, yeah, I have two. One hangs in my living room. Okay. I can respect that. But let me ask you a question, right? So these are inmates from Angola, right? So, you know, it could be somebody's in there for car theft, murder, something some of that, right? They're in there for pretty hefty things, I'm sure. Right. Would you be like, oh, a serial killer who buried like 15 people under his house. Let me buy that dude's painting and hang it in my I don't know room. that he's allowed. He probably wouldn't be allowed because not everybody gets to participate. Because like you walk during the rodeo, like you're walking amongst some of the prisoners. Like you can't bring things in. You can't, you know, it's like going to visit somebody in jail. But then there's some, like when you go watch the rodeo, there's like prisoners behind, like in cage, like not cages, but like cages, fences. Yeah, they're like essentially cages. They're right. sitting in the stands in a cage. Like no touching the whole time, but. Basically. But yeah, yeah. I don't think about what my painting artist did, but he very well could be a murderer. Yeah. Well, like John Wayne Gacy, though, would do paintings of himself dressed as Pogo the Clown. Like how he yeah, would dress right. at parties and no, I'll send you a picture of mine. It's just the old painted New Orleans yeah. style home. It's beautiful. Well, and like that's the thing. I think that there is I think that there are people in prison who have made bad choices. Maybe they are trying to reform themselves and you know, they have a talent, yeah. and, you know. Then there's people like John Wayne Gacy or Gerard John Schaefer where I'm like, I'm not buying your book, dude. Like I'm not doing yeah, no. you're a a monster you know what i mean i'm not giving you a yeah. dime so right 
it's just so crazy because I'm trying to think of myself as a detective in the 70s, right? Like, again, it's already the most violent decade that we have on record. Now, granted, it was the first decade that we started keeping track, but still, extremely violent era in our history. And you're a detective where police departments don't work together. And you're like, okay, maybe this guy was up to some other stuff. I'm going to search his house. And then you're like, oh, he's connected to 34 missing women. And he murdered on three continents. Now, I will say, I think also part of him, I think once he was arrested, and I can't find anything in the research to verify this, but the sense that I got was that once he was caught, he felt like being a little braggadocious. So I don't know because I didn't see anything that's really true or not. Yeah, because I didn't see anything in any of the research that I did about him like traveling or being anywhere else for any extended period of time. Not to say that he didn't, but I also wonder if like he got caught and he was like, okay, well, I'm going to make my legend huge. You know, like it could have very well been uh, maybe it was more than 34. But I also wonder, too, if part of it was just him being like, "Okay, well, you think I'm bad. I'm going to like show you how bad I am. You know what I mean? Yeah, I've killed a pregnant woman. But the things that we know that he did are terrifying. Terrible. Yeah. You know, and just thinking about, too, like because we've done other stories that have involved hitchhiking, you know, and it's like it was such a common thing. And people were so trusting. I can't imagine doing I know we've talked about it before, but I I can't imagine being like, I'm just going to hitchhike. Get in the car yeah. with somebody. See what happens. I need happens. to go to the beach today. I need to hit check. Yeah. Cabs existed back in the 70s. Yeah. Cabs, you know, or have your mom take you or something. You know what I mean? But I mean, if the mom of the other girls that unfortunately died, if you have to think about writing down a license plate number, you probably shouldn't let your kid get in the car. Yeah. And, you know, I, like I said, I think back then it was just a different time. You know, know what I mean? Where it, the mom was probably like, something nope. feels weird. So to be safe, like I'm going to jot this down, but it was normal, you know? And I think the other thing that's really scary to me too, I think we talked a lot about this in your new Orleans killer cop episode going all the way back to episode two, but like mm-hmm. this is a police officer. So this is someone like you wouldn't think you'd be like, Oh man, this cop is like offering to come pick me up and take me like, I'm totally safe with this person. And then yeah. next thing you know, you're in the woods with a noose around, your, around neck. your neck. It's crazy. This was a wild one. Yeah. And I also just can't, I mean, let me ask you this. You're a cop, right? And you're like, I'm going to do this search warrant. And you go in and you're finding jewelry. You're finding IDs. You're finding these sick stories. And then you find human teeth. Like what's going through your head? Cause that's what I was saying. I was like, Oh, like it would feel like hitting the, like the mother load. evidence. Yeah. Of evidence. I don't know. I was just, I just was not, I was not anticipating it to be as, as many victims as it was. And, you know, and then if you're the cop that's finding all this, like, are you just disappointed in your colleague? The other thing that got me is that he was arrested in July of 1972. And then he went to jail in January of 1973. Susan Place and Georgia Jessup went missing a week before he went to jail. So it would have been the end of 1972. They didn't track down that car until March of 1973. So he had been in prison for two months already. So that's like how slow these cops were working. Yeah. And it's just kind of like they blew it off. Like, oh, no, it's fine. It's nothing. Yeah. And you turns know, out they were very wrong. Yeah. And, you know, they don't really get into it much. But I also was sitting there wondering. And again, it's just speculation. But I was like. You know, was it maybe they thought these kids were runaways? Because especially at this time, you know, kids are 
hitchhiking and you're coming off the sixties and the, you know, the hate Ashbury people just leave in and, and especially in some place like Florida where it's sunny, you know, like kids just being like, I'm taking off and maybe they come home later. So I didn't know if maybe they thought it was, you know, runaways or something, but just the fact that it took so long. And, you know, I wonder too, if part of it is just, you know, again, departments didn't really work together. So if you were in a different County and something happened, like you didn't know, so it might take longer to, get information, but it just kind of blew my mind that it took that long to be like, Oh, this license plate belongs to this guy. Cause you feel like you could do it now in like 30 seconds. Yeah. I'm like, all that takes is seconds. You open the system, you type it in and boom, you got a You've got a registered owner. And yeah. I feel like that system probably was still pretty easy in the seventies. Yeah. I'm sure it was all done by like paper and, you know, held that way. I mean, it would have had to been right. But like, I feel like you could have called the DMV and been like, hey, this license plate number. Hey, run this plate. And by the end of the day, you know who it is, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. It's just, it was a really surprising story because the way that it starts off, you're like, oh, okay, I like this guy abusing his power and he's into some really dark stuff. And and I definitely think it speaks to the fact that kids with issues can grow up to be adults that are very dangerous. And it's important to like catch those things. And I think it's super great that like we have therapy and you know like it's the stigma is gone because i think that probably stops a lot of gerard john chaffers from coming into the world but it's just scary to to think that you know he had these issues since a child and then he took this job specifically to abuse power it feels like you know trying to be a teacher probably something similar maybe even being a priest right because you're in a position of power above other people as a priest I didn't expect it to go the way that it went. And it just kind of blew my mind as I was going through it. Yeah, it was definitely not what I was expecting at all. Well, if we're talking deadbolt tests, right? If we're getting down the nuts and bolts, how likely are you to check your locks? What do you think? Scale of one to 10, where are you putting it? A seven. All right, tell me why. It's pretty terrifying. You know, that it goes to the position of power. He's a cop. I'm a teenager. You say you're going to help me get to the beach. I believe you. And then you take me to the swamp and tie me up. That's terrifying. Yeah. And it's crazy, too, because, I mean, even now you hear stories about police officers who, you know, pull somebody over and they, you know, force a young lady to do something or take her somewhere, you know, or a cop. I read a story about a cop who ran a lady's license plate because he thought she was attractive and then got her phone number, her address and started stalking her. And I'm, you know, I, I know there's a lot of good police out there, but I think it's just like any other job where there's, there's good and bad physicians. There's good and bad nurse practitioners. There's good and bad nurses. I mean, we've seen that there's good and bad customer service. Yeah, I totally agree. It's just, you know, it's one of those things where I think there are people out there that are power hungry and they're looking to be in positions where they can kind of lord themselves over other people and they have control and manipulation and, empowered to be like, yeah. you know, I could arrest you. What are you going to do? Come with me or I'm going to arrest you. You're going to tell the cops. Right. I, you know, well, I, I am, am the one. Cops. I am the cops. Right. Well, where are you putting it? I'll be honest. I think for me, I'm going to put this about an eight. I'm going to kind of sit around the same place that you are. And as I was going through, I couldn't help thinking about like what Millie is going to be like as a teenager. Could my kid be in the type of situation where, you know, she's 15, 16 out with friends and gets pulled over by somebody, you know, like this? It's just scary because you never know who is trying to take advantage of you. And it's also scarier when it's somebody in that position of power, you know, or like your mom or, you know, your sister, whoever. It's like you start thinking about like the 
the women in your life that somebody could target or want to do something bad to. And, and like we said, it's like when you're the cop, you have the power, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's very, very unsettling that this guy was allowed to operate. And I am very thankful. Like we were kind of talking about earlier that the process to become in a position of authority has changed quite a bit. It seems like since this time. So, well, that is where we fall on the deadbolt test for this week's episode. Olivia is given it a seven. I'm coming in at an eight, but as always, we want to hear from the locksmiths hear from the listeners. Where does Gerard John Schaefer jr. Fall on your deadbolt test. You can let us know, reach out to us on Instagram at check the locks pod. You can find us on Twitter or X at check the locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, what are you doing? Come hang out with us. We would love to get to know you. I have to tell you, Olivia, one of my favorite things every Sunday, we welcome new members to the Facebook group. There's a welcome post and it just warms my heart so much because members of the group will comment and be like, Hey, welcome super like welcome to the family. We're happy to have you. You know what I mean? So it's such a cool sense of community and everybody seems so welcoming that number one, I can't believe that that has been created around something that we're doing. And number two, it just feels so awesome to be a part of that group. So if you are one of those people who are welcoming those new members, thank you so much. You know, thank you for making it feel comfortable and, and, you know, someplace that they're very welcomed. It's like you always say, John, it's the best place on the internet. So why wouldn't our locksmiths be friendly and welcoming? No, I totally agree. I'll tell you. So my grandma passed away and she had a bunch of Hummels, which are these old weird figurines. And we were trying Mm -hmm. to figure out if any of them were worth any money. And I've joined a couple Hummel Facebook groups. And there are people in there who are straight assholes about like little porcelain figurines. So like something super innocuous where you think people would just be super nice. You know what I mean? Here's my figurine. Yeah. Like, Ooh, this is the balloon man from, you know, 1934 (laughs) and people just talk trash. It's crazy. So again, just, you will be removed from our Facebook group. If you are mean, that is true. You agree to all the rules come, come kind or don't come at all. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. But we love our listeners. We do. And we love everybody in the community. So if you're not in our Facebook group, if you feel like coming and hanging out with some truly wonderful people, some truly welcoming people, come hang out with us. We would love to have you. Olivia, guess what? This story. We have a voicemail. No, we don't have a voicemail. We should have because my mom recorded it wrong, but whatever. Yeah. Thanks, mom. (laughs) You do a better job. No, I'm just kidding. Trish, thank you. We love you. But. This story was crazy, right? It uh, had a lot of twists and turns, a lot of unexpected things. I need a palate cleanser. I think we need our very first five-star review of 2024. And we asked, we said, hey, we need more reviews. And people came through. So if you have, if you were one of those people who left us that review, thank you. I think we should read one. What do you think, Olivia? I think so, too. All right. Who do you got for us this week? This week's five-star review comes from Sarah328, and they said, I started listening because of maths, but stayed because I love the podcast. Love that I can listen in one sitting without having to stop before getting to the end with a couple heart emojis. So thank you, Sarah328, for leaving us a five-star review, and we love that you stayed because you love Check the Locks. Yeah, Sarah, thank you so much for taking time to leave that review. The fact that, you know, we get to hang out with you and and 
you know, in the commute or, you know, however you're listening, the fact that you let us be part of your lives, it really does mean a lot. And really just the fact that you would take the time to leave us that review, right? Especially around the holidays, right? We're just coming off Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. The fact that you took the time to leave that review, it really does mean a lot. So we would love to send you some stuff. We got stickers, we got buttons, we got all sorts of stuff that we would love to send you for taking that time. Reach out to us. Again, you can hit us up on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. Or if you're in our Facebook group, you can either send myself, Olivia, a direct message. Just make sure you put it in the group. Let us know that you've sent it so we don't miss it. But we would love to get some goodies out to you. And Olivia, if somebody would like to have their five-star review read on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? They need to go to the Apple Podcast app, go to our show's homepage, scroll down where you see all five of those purple stars, click them all and leave us a little bit of love and tell us what you think. And that's right. Olivia always says it best so that I don't have to. Apple Podcasts, click the stars, write it down. If you need a cheat code, you can use the link in the description of this episode that you're listening to. And people, we talk about it all the time, right? These reviews help us so much. They get us into other shows' recommendations. They help new listeners find the show. It helps our community to grow. And that just means so much. It's how we're going to get the word out and how people find us. So again, if that is you, you have taken the time to leave us a review. Just know we appreciate you so much. If you haven't, we want to hear from you. Apple Podcasts, leave that review. Also, if you listen on Spotify, you can leave us a Spotify comment. We will read those as well. We want to hear from you no matter how you listen to the show. So again, if you've left us a review, a Spotify comment, just know we appreciate you. And as always, if you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, you can do so by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks and get signed up today. We got a lot of great tiers, a lot of exclusive benefits. We got stickers, t-shirts, coffee mugs, all sorts of things that you can only get for being a patron. Plus, you get the shows a little bit early. You get them ad free. So if you love check the locks, but you hate commercials, Patreon is the way to go. So again, if you like what we do, you want to help us out, throw us a couple bones, head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks, get signed up today. And as always, if you can't financially support the show, we definitely understand just listening, hanging out with us and sharing what we do with your friends and family means just as much, if not more. So if that is you, you're listening to the show, you're sending out those links, you're letting people know about this you know, weird little true crime podcast that we do, just know it means the world to us. Sharing those links to the people that are important to you is how, again, the show is gonna grow, get out in front of more people, find those new listeners, help build our community. So if that is what you were doing, just know we appreciate you more than we could ever tell you. That is all that we have for this week's case, but please make sure that you are subscribed to check the locks in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the lock. See you next week. Adios.